and uh, go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Last week we looked at the first 17 verses. Today we're going to zoom in on the first six verses of some of the characters that are listed for us there. Don't want to be distracted with the phone, but since the clock is not up there, I should put a clock in front of me. And you'll appreciate that, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, All right. There are a lot of different acronyms that are out and the uh, abbreviation stuff. You know how people will like uh, um, text like BRB or LOL or, you know, different stuff like this. And and sometimes you you have to, to learn learn them, and they have different versions of them. There's the normal versions. I've seen, like, senior citizens' versions of those texting lingo things. And I, I learned one the last couple of weeks that um, I'd nev- not seen before, and I, I didn't know to be offended by it or not. Um, it was TL semicolon DR. And do you know, anyone know what that one means? Um too long, didn't read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone t- sent something too long, didn't read it, you know. And um, last week we uh, introduced genealogies, and I think sometimes if we're getting uh, the message of the gospel, sometimes one of us have that, like, oh, I saw the genealogies, and it was like too long, didn't read it, you know. And we have that idea that, that credits in a movie or something like that. But there's so many awesome lessons, and God deliberately planned it that way. So after 400 years of silence from between the Testaments, the Gospel of Matthew opens up with these genealogies, with this family tree. And so he's doing this with purpose in mind, and so we need to listen to that because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable. If we're going to believe the Bible... If you're going to believe the inerrancy of the Bible and that it is plenary and that God it is sufficient, that God put it there for a reason, that you can't just believe that a little bit. I mean, you've got to like lean into that. You can't just like, ah, oh, well, this part, but not that part. So when God gives us the genealogies, the background of Jesus' family tree, so that's what we're wanting to do in this Prepare Him Room series, is just kind of lean into that a little bit and learn some lessons from some of those characters within Jesus' family tree. And so I want to read the first six verses, have a word of prayer. We'll learn some lessons for, about this uh, from, these char- from three of these characters in, in this uh, genealogy today. And then that will conclude our time. And I think this will also highlight the gospel and the centrality of the gospel in our lives, in our church's life. Matthew chapter 1. This is God's word. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Ashdod, and Ashdod the father of Salmon. The, the, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David, the father of Solomon, by Uriah, by the wife of Uriah. And then verse 17, so all the generations 
from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the de de deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the, the, to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit who is here now, and we ask that he would work now. Oh, God, we depend upon you. I ask for filling. I ask for you to uh, guide. And, Lord, pray that this would be an act of love, that we would do this out of love for Jesus and love for others. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So, lest we have that TLDR mentality uh, about the uh, genealogies, we want to dig in. And we mentioned last week as we introduced these genealogies that the genealogies of Jesus, they declare Jesus' history. That genealogy means history or source or lineage. This is his story. Um, and the same phrase that used there is, is, uh, of the genealogy of Jesus is also that of Adam and uh, what happened with the facts of human origins. Um, and then also it demonstrates Jesus' descent and the, the, his legal descent and then Luke's genealogy demonstrates for us his biological descent from Adam. And so um, we learned last week four lessons about the genealogies in general. Kind of a big picture, just to recap those. It was that Christmas is a continuation of the Old Testament story of God's redemptive plan to wayward people. It's, it's, not, it's not a new story. It's picking up where the old left off. It's a continuation. Um, secondly, we learned that Christmas is connected to God's covenant with Israel. Those titles for Jesus mentioned there in verse 1, that he is Christ, the anointed one, the son of David. Um, he is the, of the royal lineage of David. He's, he's rightly credentialed and qualified as Messiah. And then he is the son of Abraham, that the covenant of the promise that in, through Abraham's seed the whole world will be blessed is coming through Jesus. And thirdly, we saw that the Christmas was not just about main figures, but many others. And then finally, we, we stopped with this, introduced this last week, and said we'd pick up this week. And that's what we're doing, is that the lesson that God accepts uh, the sinful and the marginalized into his family. And that's where we're going to pick up today. The genealogies teach us that God accepts the sinful and the marginalized into his family. And so this is really lessons from Jesus' family tree. And we see this at the beginning of the Christmas story. So what I want to do is zoom in on three of those today, and they all happen to be ladies. And there are five ladies mentioned in, in this genealogy in Matthew's account. Um, all of them have um, um, hardness in life. They, all of them have uh, circumstances in life that are, that are negative, that dealing with the loss of a husband or misunderstood or falsely accused or uh, dealing with poverty or... Uh, displaced from one place to another, like Ruth, like Mary. And these, if we need to think of the, these, the circumstances these ladies went through. But also that, that women were not normally named in ancient Near Eastern genealogies. I mean, that, that how countercultural is the Bible to the fact that it would name in the genealogy of Messiah five ladies. Now, we, we highlighted in that last week that if you're, uh, if sometimes people that would criticize the Bible will say, well, look at the two genealogies of Jesus. They're, they're not the same. They don't line up. They're not incomplete or whatever like that. And as, as it, but the, the answer is that the Bible always has, sometimes it's usually in our understanding that Matthew's, got, Matthew's genealogy is tracing his lineage from 
David. And, and some would say, well, maybe the um, Luke's genealogies is the Mary side, the biological side, back to Adam. Um, and also that the word father of or begat, it just means the ancestor of, just like saying you're from the clan of, or maybe there was a grandfather. And so I say all that because Matthew has kind of given it to us in a synopsis here, maybe a way to remember, uh, kind of how we might remember some presidents and not other presidents or things like that in, our, in the timeline we might have in our head of uh, American history. But that, um, that that's going on here uh, here with, with, with these things. So the fact that these ladies are mentioned is an incredible thing. That, um, but so there are some kings that are not mentioned, yet there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. The, the, and, um, and it just shows that this is intrinsic to God's purposes in Christ. That normally the descent is always traced from the, uh, uh, the male or the, the, the head, ho- head of household. But they are deliberately mentioned that God is deliberate, that Christianity is always countercultural, that the gospel, the Bible is elevates the status of women, not the opposite. Don't let the world feed you that lie. It's not factual. It's not accurate. It's not historical. But of the five ladies that are mentioned here, three of them were ladies that will go down in history uh, as having questionable character. They, they, all three of them have Gentile associations. I'll make some observations about them. And those are, we see the first one, I want to highlight these today, Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, and the wife of Uriah, the mother of Solomon, in verse 6. Of course, we know from... That's Bathsheba. All of these ladies were treated negatively by their culture and even by their own families. Um, Tamar was treated negatively by her own family. So was Rahab. And so was Bathsheba. All of them had bad reputation for sexual sins. Um, all of them are accused and misunderstood, and all of them had difficulties in life. Difficulties that came either by their own sin, through poverty, or through the loss of a husband, or, or other things. And so, I want to just do a quick survey of these three ladies. The first one is Tamar that's mentioned here in verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, remember they were twins, by Tamar. Now, if you go back, this is in Genesis chapter 38, the story is told, particularly verses 6 to 30. Judah, this, the chapter opens up, Judah's, Judah, um, he goes and takes a wife of, the, of, a, of the, the, a Gentile wife and has children and has sons and one of his sons dies and the story goes that it, because of the way inheritances work that the, the, the brother was to father a child by the widow, so that the widow could have part of the of that inheritance, and and so there is the is, that doesn't take place, and uh, to, for not to this is a whole sermon in itself, but the story goes that Tamar um, is, d- does not have that happen. Judah forgets about it. She um, goes and dresses as a harlot. Um, Judah goes into her. And fathers a child, two children, these twins, 
and um, one of and is in the lineage of Jesus. Now, I do want to point out the double standard here that women, especially in the ancient world, were subjected to. That I mean, this really remind the, the the ugly actions of Genesis chapter thirty eight are committed by Judah. I mean, so it's reminding us of the. The, the, the failure of Judah. I mean, this is the guy through which that uh, the Messiah's line is supposed to come, and he fails miserably, reminding us that, um, that people are, are, are I mean, even those in Jesus' line are messed up. But she experiences injustice. And the, the inheritance, the probably money's at stake. That the reason that the son of Judah, the brother of her husband, uh, doesn't um, you can read the passage? I don't. I don't it's in the Bible. Um, doesn't she doesn't become pregnant from him? Is probably because he doesn't want to have to split the inheritance amongst his sons. You know, a little math. Make sure it's not not delineated too much. And um, and she's kind of a survivor. I mean, it, it, it's, we're not excusing what she does, but you know, she's kind of got on her playlist. I'm a survivor here. And she does what needs to happen to secure this um, inheritance. And, um, but it reminds us that God uses very unlikely people to work about his redemptive purposes. And that's Tamar. And then we come to Rahab in verse 6. And of course, you know Rahab is a, is a Canaanite. She is, uh, uh, and she holds the occupation of being a prostitute. Rahab the harlot. She has an inn or a house uh, on the wall. And of course, you know the story of that she the, the spies come, they stay with her, she hides them, probably the first not the first time men hid from the law in her inn, and they let the court out, and so they the promise is that when the walls come down, the part where her house is uh, survives. And she is part of Jesus, that she, by salmon, the father of Boaz. Of course, you'll know Boaz, and that's where we're going to pick up next week with Ruth. But Boaz and Rahab is the father, Rahab's mother, Rahab's the mother of Boaz, I'm sorry. Boaz's mom is Rahab. Now, Sometimes we just need to back up and kind of think about this. The fact that, that what, what's her circumstances? Okay, yes, we like to paint her, you know, big scarlet A on her chest because of her occupation. But the fact that her house, her inn, is on the wall, the walls are on the outside of city of the city, right? They're, 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 they're very vulnerable. That's where attack's going to come from the first, right? So, so she's a lady who is used to living outside of society and the margins of society on the borders. She's used to being on the edge, being vulnerable. Life on the wall uh, uh, would kind of be her, her blog title, right? She, her house is on the wall. Um, and she'd heard stories, going back into the story there in the Old Testament, she'd heard stories of the God of the Israelites and how he'd opened up the Red Sea and how he'd done these things for them. And, um, and, She's commended by two New Testament writers for her faith, not for what she does, not for the lie, not for anything like this, but for her faith. And so the key is found for us there in Joshua chapter 2, which is where the story is, that she recognizes that God is the Lord 
the true right, the true and rightful king. And he confess, and she confesses her faith in him. And she says there, he is the Lord. And, she, and when she refers to God, Yahweh, she uses that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. She is recognizing the lordship of the God of the ages, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. She's recognizing him and confessing faith in him. And she sacrifices her identity and her former occupation and becomes a part of God's redemptive story. She becomes a part of the church. She becomes a part of God's people. And the scriptures even tell us that she anticipates the justification of the Gentiles in Galatians 3 and Hebrews 11 and then in James chapter 2. And of course, she becomes the mother of Boaz. So this lady, Rahab, her greatest contribution, I mean, say, helping them with the, the spies is also a son she raises. And I heard someone say, maybe our greatest contribution in life won't be something we do, but in someone we raise. And um, she raised a pretty good boy, as you can see in the book of Ruth. And her son, uh, even how, think about even how, how that could come into play and how Boaz treats a marginalized Moabite woman who comes to glean in his field, thinking of that he, on the edges of the field, that he was raised by a mom who was on the edges of town on the wall. And that came into play in something there. But we're not here to elevate Boaz or just dig into Rahab, but to go on with the story of what we can learn from Jesus' family tree. So we come to the next one lady mentioned in the Jesus' family tree here in Matthew in verse 6. And that is David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, we're not just pointing out the negatives of these three ladies, but they're actually highlighting for us the negatives and the downfall of Judah, of the, the, uh, of the men in uh, the spies, and of also of David. This is really David's downfall here. And, but it is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now, this is, this is I remember, it took me a long time before I just, this dawned on me how significant that this is. I mean, this is, um, uh, th- this, this is an incredible thing. So she is Solomon's mother. The mother of Solomon. Now, I want you to go to kind of an unlikely passage where you would expect this woman who uh, sins with the king has, and, and is part of this, of her husband being killed and marrying David. And that is Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, if you would. Proverbs 31. The Proverbs are penned for us humanly by Solomon, most of them, and he uses a pen name in some, and Proverbs 31 is a great example of one. So I want you to get there and look at it in Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, Lemuel is a pen name for Solomon. Who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. When we usually point to Proverbs 31, this is like the passage for like the excellent woman, right? The woman of virtue. I mean, this is like the, I mean, this is like every ladies tea and ladies conference right here, right? And whose mom? Solomon's, who was Bathsheba. I want you to let that think in and let, and let that be like this gospel centered, gospel infused idea. 
that how God takes people that are outcasts, that are sinful, that are, that are royally messed up, like literally royally with David, the king, like that, that, and uses them in ways like this. I mean, if you don't get anything else from this passage, this is huge. That Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. This is the gospel. Now, so moral, the moral idea and the religious idea in American church life would say, you've messed up, you committed adultery, you're divorced, you did this, you're a loser, you're a bad mom, your mom was a drunk, so you're going to be a drunk, your mom messed up, so you're going to mess up, your dad was this way, and you're just going to be like him, you're going to open your mouth and your mom's going to come out, and that's just how it is. You're never going to be like one of those godly ladies. You're too bad. You're all once a bad girl, always a bad girl. But the gospel says, yes, but if you repent, God will change you and he will turn beauty to ashes and he will take one of the worst stories in the Bible about a woman and a king committing adultery and teach them and come out of it the greatest passage on a woman of virtue in the whole Bible as well. He'll turn you from an unfaithful army wife who sleeps around with a high-ranking officer to the mother that writes the flagship passage to her son about the type of woman to look for. And it says there in, a, in, in, Roman, in Proverbs 31, uh, the key to the passage, he talks about her virtue and all the things that she's involved in, and there's a note there that it's very centered around her home. And, um, but the verse 30, it says that she is a woman who fears the Lord. And that's really the whole point of the Proverbs. I mean, Mara Proverbs is not disconnected. Proverbs 31 is not disconnected from the rest of the Proverbs. And, <coughs> and the Proverbs that Solomon wrote, he said, I'm doing this to give understanding to the simple, to give wisdom to young men, to teach the fear of the Lord. In the beginning, first couple of Proverbs, chapters of Proverbs. <coughs> so he's highlighting and giving a picture of what this looks like on the girl side of thing of a woman who fears the Lord. All of her manufacturing, all of her management, all of her farming, all of her real estate is a result of this woman of virtue having reverence for God. She excels in her fear of God. And those character traits flow out of it. Um, um, This is why this quality of fearing God is more important than skill and talent because it all comes out of that. It's why... um, uh, a biblical worldview is so important that we don't just want to have well-adjusted kids that have a certain skill set to get a job, but that they would have a fear of God. And this also reminds us that the, the gospel reminds us that all virtue comes from God. A woman of virtue, a virtuous woman, virtue comes and starts with the fear of God. And we see that in in First Peter, to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Um, that these virtues is the gospel working out of us. That Jesus ultimately is our virtue. Um, this is the gospel applied in real life. You see this gospel coming out in this example of Solomon's mother telling him what a woman of virtue looks like. So there's these three ladies here that we've seen that the, the redemption working in their life and things. So, but, and I, so I have a few, few lessons for us, I think, from these three ladies and we're just kind of zooming in. And that's really what this season is, is not to kind of rushing through passages, but to kind of just pause and meditate and zoom in a little bit. Um, that when we see 
Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba here? What should that make us think when we see these ladies mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? And the first lesson, I believe, is this, that God accepts the ones that others reject. God accepts the one others reject. Those that others reject and will consider outcasts are more than welcome in Jesus' family tree. Uh, the condition is that they would repent and put their faith in him, that they would, uh, but, they, but, but those that are rejected by others are, are accepted by him. Uh, there, there's this um, illustration that Matt Chandler's kind of made famous and, uh, about a rose, and uh, it kind of highlights for us kind of that legalistic, kind of fundamental, um, mean-spirited Christianity versus gospel-centered Christianity. Um, and that is that, and, and I remember you go to youth conferences or youth rallies and, and, and the importance of moral purity. And, I, and I, you know, they, they would talk about, you know, not, and, and, and that's a, so important to teach young people, the importance of being physically pure and saving yourself physically for your future spouse and emotionally, being emotionally pure and not, and so, you know, the whole idea of, you know, do you really want like all the, the guys you dated and fell in love with all lined up beside, beside your husband when you're uh, at your wedding day or all the girls you've dated or slept around with or, uh, you know, lined up behind your spouse on your wedding day. And so, so, so don't, so keep yourself pure uh, for that one. And, you know, that's a good, that's an important thing. Another illustration was often common was that they take a rose, like a white rose, and go around to the kids in the youth, in the youth room and, and say, I want everybody to pass this rose around. Well, it's nice, but if you've ever handed anything to a bunch of junior high and high school kids and passed it around, by the time it comes back to you, it's pretty mangled and ratty, right? And and, and so then, the, so the illustration that was very common in, in about in youth youth rallies and youth ministry stuff was: you pass this rose around, comes back, and um, and and the and the speaker would hold it up and say, "Now, who really wants this rose now?" You know, it's all, it's been tossed around, it's been used, it's been handled by everybody's greasy palms after they had pizza grease all over their hands and all that. And, and, that's, and, the, and the lesson was, so you need to keep yourself pure, you need to stay away. And then Matt, I think it's awesome that the gospel comes in and it's almost as if he's holding the, the rose up that's all wilted and mangled and saying, now who wants this thing now? And it's as if Jesus stands up in the back and says, I do, I want it. And, that, and that's the gospel. I mean, the, the, so seeing these folks in this genealogy it reminds us that, that the people that no one else wants, Jesus does. And so um, that is huge for us to take, that you can be one of those. God doesn't want me. I've got to clean my life up. I can never be in church. Or I, it's like, no, 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 no. That's who Jesus wants. And second lesson is that God chooses and uses the most unlikely people. I mean, when you hear these stories, you go, okay, Judah, but then this happens. And like, Whoa. But God uses Tamar or Rahab or this Moabite woman coming back after she's lost her husband, that God uses this. The most unlikely are the ones God chooses. Uh, and, and that's a huge lesson for us as we see this in, these, in this story. And there's an application there for us. In this third lesson, that God's people should learn this, that God's people should treat the marginalized the way Jesus. If Jesus accepts those marginalized and outcasts and unlikely into his family, 
God's people ought to have that same type of spirit to how we treat them with dignity, with honor, with kindness, and with grace. That we would prepare, as we would prepare him room, that we would prepare room for them. That there's a, I mean, do do, do you make space for them in that way? That we would have that type of um, kindness towards the marginalized and the rejected. Like the, so, so this is not just the down and outers. I mean, this is that God's people would have a heart for those that you know come from a background or, or are staying in certain places. So, so, so I'm talking about mercy ministry things and welcoming them in, but also like your disposition towards those. That, that there should be some neighbors of yours. And by neighbors, I mean those that live near you. There should be some neighbors of yours and people that you work with and you interact with that are so confused by you that they just think you're the weirdest people in the world. Now, I know some of them think you're weird and then I'm weird for other reasons. But what I mean by that is when you have a neighbor who is, you know, openly, you know, whether that be a certain type of uh, sexual orientation or a certain political view or they're you know they're like the most pro-abortion people ever and they know you're like pro pro-life and and but they should be so confused by you that um they're like wait i know this person like thinks my lifestyle is wicked i know that they think my views are like you know of the devil but they're like so kind to me when i see them at the mailbox and they're like all they're they're like nice and they're like bring cards and bring the trash can back down and 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 they're and and they they speak to my kids in a kind way and and they should just be really confused by that um and and often that's what god um uses to turn people's hearts i would encourage you to get the the to read sometime whether online or get the book uh thomas nelson published it uh one by love by norma mccorvey uh, Norma McCorvey was the lady that you know as Jane Roe uh, from the Roe v. Wade decision. And after she was just kind of used as a pawn for the, but politically, and she worked in abortion clinics, and um, there was a Christian pro-life group that had an office near one of their clinics, and they would just show love to her. And so she gives her testimony of coming to Christ, and now she has a ministry called Roe No More, and um that um and she said that i'm we've won by love just so god's people are going to show kindness to the marginalized they're going to treat them with dignity and honor you're going to the ladies that would have the reputation of rahab or the the outside of the wall of society uh of of a uh, of rahab or coming from an outsider a uh, an immigrant from outside of us like a ruth or uh, one like this, that you, they would see them as dignified and with worth. Uh, and, and this is really the Christian worldview, um, that we not look down upon that. And so I ask us to make space for them in our lives and in our church and treat people with dignity. I mean, there ought to be like a, a, a royal-type welcome when we have guests come here. We have a, and that's been a super encouraging to have so many guests come to our services lately and that, that we would have that type of heart. And then the last lesson I want to observe is that Jesus' family reminds us that he is the Savior of all peoples. 
that Jesus' lineage is comprised of men and women and adulterers and prostitutes and heroes and Gentiles, and that he is the Savior of all, that he offers that. And, and because Jesus' family is comprised of so many different types of people, our church, we ought to want our church to be the same. And then we need to be ready for this and long for this, that all of these different types and that, that there is a welcome here. And so the big application is this. Are you a part of Jesus' family? Are you a part of this lineage? And he lets us, the outcasts, those that are from Gentile backgrounds, to be grafted into this redemptive relationship of the family of God. And even he even presents the gospel in these ways, doesn't he? That you need to be born again. Uh, adopted into the family. Uh, we have this adoption. Uh, Galatians would, would remind us that, that we don't, we're not this way like, like slaves, but we're like joint heirs. Um, in the fullness of time, that great passage that, that, that gives us that we're like heirs, that we're like brothers and sisters with our elder brother Jesus. Um, that's an, just an incredible thing. And so that you are invited to be a part of this family. And so the attitude of, well, I've got to clean my life up before I can do that. Or, no, 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 no. This is, this is gospel here. This is what this is for us. And this, is, this should change the way we feel and think. And so just meditating and zooming in on those in Jesus' lineage and the genealogies should make us so much more gospel-centered, to use the cliché. But not, you know, but to really center everything on this gospel and should drive us and should open our hearts and should soften us and, and uh, uh, to our, our disposition towards people and, and all these things. There's this huge lesson for us to learn here. And so I hope you will, you'll take some time and maybe meditate upon this or see yourself in some of these characters and always driving us to the Savior. Uh, that he points out as we come to the the, the rest of the passage uh, in this chapter, that he is Emmanuel, that he's the Savior of all. Uh, he is our Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for just these snippets as we can just meditate and zoom in on these characters. Or that we are unfaithful, we are marginalized, we are sinful, we're outcasts. We have sinned, we have done whatever it took to survive. We have been adulterers and adulteresses. We've been outcasts and you welcome us into your family. Lord, I pray for one here that doesn't know Christ, that they would accept this offer and this gift of a Savior who wants to bring them into his family, that they would be born again. And Lord, I pray that we as Christians that believe that would, would be reminded of this, would be encouraged by it, that we would be renewed in our commitment to the gospel and being a church where the gospel is the air we breathe, where the gospel is not just something we see as the beginning of Christianity, but the gospel is, 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 is this culture that we are um, all come by the blood. And that we're adopted into a family and that of all peoples and all different types of backgrounds that you make us one in you. And that we're welcoming that, that we'd have a welcoming culture in that way. And Lord, I just um, 
pray that you'd let these things seep deep in, sink deep into us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.